If you brought a copy of Scripture this morning, I would invite you to find two passages, John chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 26. John 18, put something in there. And in Matthew chapter 26. The other day, I spent some time with a dear sister in Christ who has re-entered the ring in her fight with cancer. And uh, I have another friend who I've uh, become close to, had the joy of leading to Jesus not all that long ago, who's actually been fighting the same insidious disease for many years, and he's, uh, he's re-entered the ring again, possibly the final rounds of his life. But pressure and trials take all kinds of forms, don't they? Some of you are under a ton of duress right now for all kinds of reasons, emotional reasons, relational reasons, occupational reasons, and of course, spiritual and physical reasons as well. It's certainly true, the truism that is, that one is either headed into, coming out of, or in the very midst of some trial right now. So if you're staring one in the face, there's no better example to go to than our Lord Jesus. More than that, the trial that Jesus endured was greater than anyone has ever endured, endured in the history of, of man. What's more, his obedience under fire was one of the contributing factors of our very salvation. That's why Paul says to, to the Philippians, that Jesus was obedient to the very point of death, even the death of the cross. Without his perfect obedience, there could be no perfect sacrifice, period. But in Jesus, we have both, right? Perfect obedience, a perfect sacrifice. But Jesus was not the only one on trial during his passion. There were several people on trial at the time of his suffering, and all of them, every one of them, with the exception of Jesus, failed. Peter, after, you know, making this grandiose plea that he would, no matter what happened, he would, you know, go to the death for Jesus, and then being told, oh, oh really, because, you know, before the crow does his thing twice, you're going to deny me, and he doubled down on it, and then denied him. Not just Peter, but the disciples followed suit. They, they fall, fell right in line with the prophet Zechariah, who said about four or 500 years earlier, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will what? They'll scatter. And they did. Of course, Judas was the worst of the failures. Certainly didn't even live up to his name. His name means to praise. Nobody names their kids Judas. But he was a failure, even at the point in John 13 where Jesus is at that last supper. He, remember Jesus said, the one I dipped the sop in, offer that bread to, uh, that's the one who's going to betray me. But that was actually an act of kindness. That was actually the final invitation that Judas received to, to renege, to repent on the direction he was going and follow the Lamb of God. And of course, we know what happened there. In fact, back in, in chapter 19 of John, we won't make it there, but during his trial with Pilate, uh, he was going back and forth with them, and, and Jesus said to Pilate that the one who delivered me to you has committed the greater sin. And theologians debate as to who that is. I have no doubt in my mind that it was Judas he was referring to. 
But you could add to Judas Annas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and all those fickle Jews that were in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. All of them failed their trials. And so did you and so did I, right? We just read it earlier. He was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world didn't know him. He came unto his own people and his own people didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them, God gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, right? When you stare a trial in the face, you will either run to Jesus or you'll run from Jesus. It can be no other way. So friend, as Jesus invited Judas, what's it going to be for you? Religiously and politically, Jesus would famously endure no less than six, count them, six trials, political trials, illegal trials. I think we have them for you to look at. We're not going to examine every one of them. But every one of those represent an illegal trial that Jesus faced politically, and it was in the midst of this that he was beaten within an inch of his life. Annas was one of the, the first one mentioned there was actually the, the, the legitimate high priest. He was de- deposed many years earlier because the Romans felt he had way too much power. And you had a series of other uh, acting high priests. Caiaphas was one of them that the Romans put in there so as to not get so much power. Pilate referred to there. He, you've got three religious trials. You've got three political uh, trials. Pilate be the, fir- the first of the political trials. He was the one who pronounced repeatedly that Jesus was innocent. I find no fault in this man. He said it over and over and over again. And regardless, he still had him scourged and then crucified. And the scourging mentioned in the very first verse of chapter 19 was, uh, was called the halfway death mostly because a person was literally beaten within an an inch of their lives. The government soldiers got a hold of Jesus after Pilate dismissed him to be crucified and had their way with him. And they dressed him up, as one writer put it, not so much as a king, but as a court jester. I've often wondered why the incessant and the excessive beating that Jesus took in the midst of all this. What divine purpose did that serve? It's true that at the end of Isaiah 52, it tells us that he would be marred beyond recognition by the time he went to the cross. So you have that prophecy, but beyond that, why? What what was the purpose of all of this? When you read the accounts with any imagination at all, you don't need Mel Gibson's depiction to shudder at what our Lord Jesus went through. But I have long thought that the massive abuse Jesus endured pictured the massive sin that Jesus absorbed. That's the only thing that I can think of in my mind's eye and imagination as to why Jesus endured what he endured on his way to what he had to endure, which was, of course, the cross. He knew it was coming. You know, if, if the unknown is hard to take, how much more the known, right? This, this is what the greatest trial was. The greatest, now listen to this, the greatest 
trial in history was not the political fiasco that Jesus endured. Ridiculous though it was. It was not the betrayal of Judas, tragic though it was. It was not the fearful flight of all of his disciples as discouraging as that would have been. And it was not the denial of Peter, as colossal as it was. It wasn't even, his greatest trial wasn't even the excruciating, despicable physical torture that he endured, as unbelievable and as pictorial as it was. No, the greatest trial Jesus endured was within himself, took place in himself. He faced his inevitable destiny to become sin for you and me. That was the greatest trial in the history of the universe. All of us here this morning will eventually meet the moment, and, and for some of us, it's repeatedly so, most of us even, where you are given the choice to turn to God or from God. Jesus showed the way for all of us. In John chapter 18, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, that's the words, the, the high priestly prayer that we looked at last week when he prayed for himself, his disciples, and, and us. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. You talk about pictures. The, the, the word Kidron, the brook, is basically a dry bed, but it would run from time to time during the rainy seasons. It fell between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Temple Mount. So it's in that little valley there. And the word means dark and murky, and certainly as... G now, John tells us, no other writer does this. He tells us he crosses the Kidron on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, this is the time of the Passover. Virtually thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs are being slaughtered up top. That's a lot of blood. What are you going to do with it? The Jews cut a shaft down into the Kidron. That was literally running with the blood of those lambs. And Jesus would have stepped right across that Kidron seeing all of those lambs that were slaughtered, the last of the lambs that would count for anything. The final lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the lamb who just several hours later would say as he hung on the cross, it is finished. There are no more sacrifices. All depicted as he crossed the Kidron. And John here takes us to the entrance of the garden. Now, Matthew, as you make your way over there, takes us to the entrance of Jesus' heart. Now he's in the garden. And make your way to verse 26, if you would, please. Make it 36. Thank you. Then Jesus went with them to a place called, what? Say it. Gethsemane. The word means oil press, and it would mean that. Of course, it is, it's, it's an olive grove. It's still there today. 
Olives, you don't get olives without, that is, you don't get olive oil without pressure. And so you talk about another picture here. The only way to get olive oil is through pressure. And here we're told that he enters into the garden of the oil press, Gethsemane. And here he is under the duress of his life. He's under excruciating pressure. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us, and of course Luke would tell us this, he is the doctor, he tells us that under this pressure, this immense pressure, that this emotional, this stressful, this anticipatory pressure that Jesus is under, that his capillary started breaking in his pores, and he literally bleeds blood, a medical condition, as rare as it can possibly be, but he endured it. He says, sit here to his disciples while I go and pray. And taking with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, watch this, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. So he says his soul is very sorrowful. The, the Greek literally, it's a word which means to be encompassed with sorrow. In fact, one writer says to be surrounded with sorrow. He is so depressed. He is under such duress that he feels like he could die. Did you see that there? The Garden of Gethsemane didn't kill Jesus, but it nearly did. Just anticipating what he was about to anticipate. And what was going on here, I want to show you something. I'll just show you. You don't need to go there. I want to show you a passage of Scripture in Hebrews 5, which it might be the most mysterious verse in the entire New Testament. Here it is. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Now, this gives us a peek into the intensity of Jesus' prayers in the, in the garden. I mean, we're told he loud cries and tears. But note why the Father heard him. Here's, I got a clue for you. It's not because he was hard of hearing. The rest of the verse says, because of Jesus' reverence. That's why he was heard. The reason God hears any of us is twofold. We come to him the only way we can come to him, through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. The only way you get to God, the only way we get to God, is through Jesus Christ. And the only way we get to God is not just through Jesus, but it's with a heart that God accepts. It is a reverent heart. The word reverence there in Hebrews 7 is an interesting word. It, it was used of carrying a priceless Persian vase across the room. 
And so it's talking about the way our heart condition as we approach God. We don't approach God flippantly. We're not praying to the old man upstairs. We're talking to the eternal God, Father God. And Jesus is crying out with tears, with great and deep reverence to God. And then the rest of the the passage in context says in Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, watch this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that's, that's a mystery to me. It's certainly a reference to, you can leave it up there, it's certainly a reference to Jesus's condescension to humanity and the, and the laying aside of, of the independent use of some of his divine attributes because he was the omniscient God, right? But it says he learned obedience. How does that happen? How does God, who in his essence is omniscient, he can't learn... He can't learn anything. How does God the Son learn? Exactly where was Jesus learning obedience? I think the idea here is that it was, it was, it was untested obedience. Jesus was never disobedient to become obedient. But he wasn't always tested. We're told he was tested in all points like you and me. That took time. That took events. That took pressure. When you you say to your kids, sit down and eat your ice cream, that's not a test, right? That is not a test. But if you say to them, clean up your room, that's probably a test. But then if you go from clean up your room to Respond righteously to that guy who falsely accused you. Now the test has taken another level. Here's the point. At every level in his life, all the way up to when the excruciating pressure was beyond imagination, Jesus passed the test. Every time. And his greatest test the hardest school that he endured was the one of suffering the vehicle the school teacher if you please was of his learning was suffering and by the way there is no other vehicle to in-depth learning more effective more soul shaping and more clearly evident than suffering. In fact, the verbs in that text, if we pulled it back up there, learned and suffered, the verbs in that text in Hebrews form a, it's, it's called an aphor, uh, aphorism. That's basically a pithy saying, like, uh, like uh, if it ain't broke, Don't fix it, right? This one is akin to no pain, no what? No gain. The other day, a friend of mine texted me with this text. How would you describe the fruitfulness of your life with the Lord lately? That was kind of a weird text. 
I didn't even know how to respond. How, do you, how would you describe the fruitfulness of your walk with the Lord lately? That took me off guard. I, I texted it back. I, I texted him. I guess that's something observers would better answer. It did get me thinking. The periods in my life where others have observed my char- the character and insight and what they would perceive as fruitfulness have always had zero to do with my study or the acquiring of knowledge. Rather, it's always been at times where I have been hurt or I have endured pressure or occasional ridicule. When I would even say to myself, yeah, that's when I've had to learn obedience. I don't know everything that Jesus learned. We're told he learned obedience here. I do know that it came through suffering. The overwhelming surrounding sorrow he told his disciples in Gethsemane he was enduring to the very point of death. The pressure that, that he knew he would be facing as he took our sin to himself absorbed the very wrath of God. This Gethsemane was the greatest trial ever and would send him in the midst of Gethsemane, repeatedly back to his father to surrender. Back to the text in Matthew, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as as I will, but as you will. The reference to the cup is an interesting thing. And yet another picture of trial and suffering. It pictured the wrath of God that Jesus would have to drink. In fact, verse 42, he even says, I've got to drink it. Have you ever noticed that a lot of the trophies that are given out for, you name the event. It could be academics, it could be racing, whatever. A lot of times they're cups, aren't they? Have you ever asked yourself, why is it a cup? I'm racing a car, why are they giving me a cup? Because the cup trophy is a depiction of all of the work, the sweat, the tears, the the struggle that gave you that victory. And it all comes from right here. The cup that Jesus drank down to the dregs. Let's move on. He says in verse 40, it says he came to his disciples, he found him sleeping. He said to them, he said to Peter, notice he, he singles out Peter. So you, you couldn't watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter would miss that prayer meeting, by the way, as we'll see in just a little bit. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink to the dregs, your wrath, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Apparently, Satan was the first wicked witch of the West. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. Watch this, saying the same words again. By the way, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you're under pressure, you need to pray, right? And God doesn't disdain repetition. He disdains vain repetition. Words with no heart. Better to have a 
Heart with no words, then words with no heart, right? And so Jesus prays the same thing. Then he came to the disciples and said to him, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And now you make your way back to John. The betrayer, the accuser, has arrived and he's dressed up as Judas. By the way, John 13 tells us that the moment Jesus offered that friendship to Judas that he refused, Satan entered into him. Have you ever read that? So he is fully possessed of the devil when he walks into Gethsemane with the Roman cohort. You're there in John 18, and you look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, who also knew the place. Of course, this was a divine setup. This is why Jesus was there. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, some of your Bibles say cohort. A cohort was 600. Most people don't think there were 600, but there's a lot of them. And, and the officers and chief priests and Pharisees went there with their lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Well, just, well, standing with them, rather. Just stop there for a moment. Listen, when, when the pressure's on, you run to God or you run from God. But I already said that, right? When the pressure's on, you run to God or you run from him. The betrayer has arrived. Judas is now, did you see in verse 5, he's on the other side. How weird would this have been for Peter and company to be looking, uh, wasn't he just praying with us a little bit ago? Just a, just a couple hours earlier, they had the Last Supper. That's why when the pressure's on, the real you comes out. That's the other thing you need to know. When the pressure's on, the real you comes out. When I see, when I saw my sister I referred to in Christ just the other day, the pressure is on, but the real her is coming out, trusting in the grace of God, the mercy of God, the strength of God. My other friend I led to Christ not long ago, um, battling cancer, same thing. It's a joy to see, and many others when the pressure's on, the real you comes out. I have to tell you, I don't want to go into a litany of individuals who absolutely and utterly fail when the pressure's on, and perhaps that's all that is, is a depiction of the condition of your soul. God knows. Pick it up in verse 6 here. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground, which is just funny. I mean, just they, they, I don't know if there's, there's not 600. There might be, there, maybe there's 50 or 100, but they all, it's funny to read the liberal commentaries. They say, well, one probably fell, and like dominoes, they just, yeah, right. What is this, a cartoon? I think Jesus gave him a little, little flash of Shekinah right there. Boom, flattened him. Why would he do that? Just to show who's in charge. That's why he did it. Verse 7, he asked them, whom do you see? Uh, they're dusting themselves. Uh, <coughs> Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> I told you I'm he. If you seek me, let these men go. So as to fulfill the word he spoke of whom, of those whom you gave me, I've lost none. 
So here is Jesus, knows everything, flashes his power, fulfills prophecy. Pretty impressive for a guy under such duress, wouldn't you agree? And then there's Peter. You remember just moments earlier, Jesus had said, now, Peter, what are you sleeping for? You, you need to pray that you don't enter into temptation. Yes, the spirit is willing. You're, you're more than willing, Peter. But your, your flesh, which, by the way, is what you're operating on, pretty weak. Peter said, no, 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 not me. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. He gives the servant's name, which, by the way, is interesting because John was written in 90 to 100 A.D., 40 to, uh, 30 to 40 years after the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They didn't name the servant because Peter would have been alive. He could have been arrested. But now they're all, he's probably dead by now. And it's okay to mention his name. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? When the pressure's on, Jesus is still in control here, isn't he? He's still in control. He's still in control of your life. The other day I was reading in the 107th Psalm where the psalmist writes about, you know, the, the mariners who go to the sea, they, they see the works of God as he sends these storms and they're going up and down, heaving up and down amongst the waves. They come to their wit's end and then they cry out to God, save us! And he does and he delivers them to his, the, he stills the storm, delivers them to their desired haven. And this is the thought that grabbed me. The one who brings the storm stills the storm. Keep this in mind, no matter what you're facing right now. When the pressure is on, Jesus is still in control. Can I get an amen? And then you got Peter. Pretty much taking control of himself. You know, I mean, he whacks off his ear. Let me tell you something. He wasn't aiming for the ear. He's lousy at everything he does. In fact, here's what Wearsby writes. Peter made every mistake possible. He fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and accomplished the wrong result. And I would add all of that before he denied Jesus. Listen, most big failures are usually preceded by a bunch of smaller ones. And when the pressure is on, it isn't that you just capitulate right now. It's called pressure for a reason, right? It's pressure. It's not all at once. It's pressure. And as we began to give in and compromise and, 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 and submit to our flesh rather than the spirit, most big failures are preceded by a bunch of smaller ones. And virtually everyone around Jesus failed either to stand for him in belief or with him in support. They failed him, but he never failed them. You'll fail him, and you have failed him. Can I get an amen? But he won't fail you. The greatest trial you'll ever face, my friend, is the trial you face 
in yourself and with yourself. Internal, real, surrounded by all the things you're surrounded by and pressure. The choice to either run to Jesus or from him is yours. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? If your heart desires to run to the Father, then come through the only one who will get you there. That's Jesus. And come as you are, broken, humble, and ready to receive his word. You either run from God or you run to God. What's it going to be? Gemma Sandberg had been running from God all of her life. And by her own wits, she became highly academically rewarded, becomes a scientist and an utter rejecter of the very existence of God and a life of morality to go along with it. Immorality, amorality. She was running from God all her life until she, until running away from him, she ran right into him. And being overwhelmed by his glory, his beauty, and his love. Here's how she described it. I felt Jesus speak into my heart many beautiful things. He told me that he died for me, and he asked me to come to him. And I said, through tears of joy, I come to you running. I felt reconciled to God. She sensed the Lord speaking to her heart. I died for you. I rose again for you. Now come to me. And you heard what she said, right? Lord, I come, and I come running. No matter what's going on in your life right now, you're either going to run to God or you're going to run from him. Some of you have been running from him all of your life. Stop. Run into him. Run to him. And find the forgiveness that Gemma found. Now she's as passionate for him as she was against him. And you can be too if you come to Jesus. Some of you already know Jesus, but you're not responding. You're, I, let me put it differently. You're responding more like Peter with your trial. That's not a good place to be. Take this pressure and bring it to the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for this trial, of which there were many, but none greater than the one he dealt with in himself as he found himself surrendered to you, Father. And if the sinless, perfect, glorious, impeccable Son of God needed to go to you, Father, how much more do we? And forgive us when we're more like Peter than we are like Jesus. 
And I pray for those who are under great duress right now for whatever reason it may be, that this might be their own Gethsemane under the pressure that they're enduring. Help them to come to you and hear their prayers. I pray for those here, Lord, who have never trusted Jesus. That's you, friend. You've, you've been running from him. Now it's time to run to him. He says, come to me. All you labor, you're heavy, heavily burdened. I'll give you rest for your soul. And that's where you need rest, right? So would you come to him and be saved? Come to the altar. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.